I would say I'm not used to that work. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the School of Celtic Studies research podcast, Nianza, where I, Nike, the podcasting O'Donovan scholar, talk to Michal Hoyne, who is our Bergen fellow. We discuss why cows look zen, or perhaps confused, whether swans have knees, and we consider starting our own merch range. And, oh yeah, of course, we also discuss a lot of bardic poetry. We hope you enjoy! Our second episode of the SES research podcast Nianza, we have with us Michal Hoyne, <laughs> who is a Bergen fellow at the Institute and who is aware that I'll be throwing old Irish questions at him uh, today. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're being recorded, so you're you're you can't escape now. So I'll throw the first question your way, which is an easy one to get us started. Uh, so the first question is: Kest, kia the chafanum shifain agus kith dotukon shin. What is your name, and what brought you here? So, Michal, go for it. Well. My name is, as you said, <laughs> yeah. uh, Michal Hoyne. Um, I was brought to this podcast by the invitation of a colleague and by <laughs> your nefarious intervention in my life. Um, how far back would you like me to go in answering the question? That's actually an interesting answer to this question, because uh, what I kind of intended was what brought you to, you know, to us at the Institute. But indeed, ah. as our listeners, uh, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you might not know that we have a system of rotation in place where the podcaster or the interviewee gets to nominate the next guest. So Michal has the pleasure of having been nominated by our previous guest, Christina Cleary. Uh, so he couldn't say no, no. <laughs> to come on. But uh, yeah, so what brought you to, I suppose, uh, do Celtic studies or to the Institute? Yeah, well, um, I suppose, I mean, going very, very far back, for whatever reason, I think I have always had an interest in the Irish language uh, as a kid. Um you know, I read translations by Lady Gregory and so on. Oh, and you won't, you won't find her on many bibliographies these days. But, you know, she's still a great recruiting sergeant. Definitely. And, Would you uh, uh, be able to explain who she was for anyone who might not know her? God, you're really putting me on the spot now. I'm far oh, more just... into the classical. <laughs> well, Lady Gregory, I suppose, was a, was a major figure in the... Uh, Celtic Renaissance, I think we call it, mm. um, I suppose late 19th, early 20th century, a renewed interest in Ireland's past and efforts to, I suppose, support the cultural nationalist cause. Um, and she translated things like you know, stories about Cuchulain and so on into, right. into English, you know, very romantic and, you know, a little bit, I suppose, mawkish nowadays. <laughs> but, uh, you know, still some of them are still, you know, wonderful works of literature and still very interesting and give you know, for a lot of people are a way into um, our field. Um, my father was always very interested in politics. He's a publican. Uh, oh, my right. mother had yeah. a real interest in the Irish language. She's a nurse. 
Um, I wasn't particularly good at Irish at school. That's um, interesting to know for any listeners who might, uh, you know, feel a bit of trepidation uh, at the mention well, of the I, Irish language. <laughs> I think I find, uh, I think one of the things, if, if, if there's anything about me that is good as a researcher, I think uh, uh, part of the reason is that I'm often quite slow at getting things, uh, which means you have to work <laughs> that bit harder and look for the rules and look for the shortcuts and uh, out, of, out of such stuff, grammarians and philologists are made. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's actually a very good point. I always feel the same uh, about, about doing research. <laughs> I so in, in in secondary school anyway I began really to take an interest and I found the Irish language curriculum uh, which we had to do for the junior cert and the leaving cert uh, just absolutely boring just okay. tedious um, and the, the the only thing that really got me going I was very lucky to have a wonderful teacher Pat O'Sullivan in St. Linus College in Stillorgan. Um, Shout out. <laughs> and uh, he was just one of those fantastic teachers. He was prepared to keep students after class who wanted to read outside of the curriculum. He introduced us to, you know, real juicy poetry. And he also let me know that there was this early modern Irish thing out there, you know, that there yeah, were, all right. there was Keating and Bardic poetry. And there was a tiny part of the Leaving Cert that was devoted to the history of the language. And you only have to learn off more or less, you know, a few lines about what is, you know, bardic poetry or what is Ohm and things like that. Right. But it was enough anyway that I got interested and I never really, I don't remember deciding. I just, I knew I was going to do Irish and history, modern Irish and history. Right. Um, at Trinity and I went on and uh, uh, started in Trinity. And, and you uh, never just, left. <laughs> and, well, more or less, yeah, well... <laughs> I have. I, I had to go to Germany. It made right. to be rather difficult. But. <laughs> There's definitely but. some interesting lines here because Christina was telling us last time that uh, she too went to Germany, uh, mm. uh, following in the footsteps of the great Damien McManus, as it were, thinking yeah. the only way I get to continue in Celtic studies is to also go to Germany, which might come as a surprise to people who are not part of the field. But Germany, of course, is a very... Uh, well, it's actually one of the, the found, founding stones, I suppose, of, uh, yeah. of the field, as it were. And, yeah. you know, it's a wonderful, you know, I've, I mean, one of the things that people do underestimate about Irish studies, Irish philology or Celtic studies more generally is that it is, you know, European and international. Mm -hmm. um, I went to Germany a bit later than Christina did or at a later stage in her career. I went actually after I'd done my PhD. Right. My first job was in Germany. Uh, I was very nervous applying for it. They wanted an early modern Irish specialist, mm -hmm. but um, I didn't have any German at that time. And I thought, well, what better way to learn than to go if they'll put up with me for, for a few months while I'm learning. And they did. And they were very good and very generous. Uh, I, too, went to Marburg, a beautiful place, lovely department, uh, wonderful colleagues. Um, and I was lucky enough to get the job, but as I discovered uh, late in the day, I was the only applicant for the job. Oh, were you? So, oh. <laughs> so however proud, however proud I felt of, felt of myself for getting it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was deserved. <laughs> I'm sure it was deserved anyway. But is that um, sort of uh, an illustration of the fact that a lot of interest in the field of Celtic studies have has gone to, I suppose, the medieval period as opposed to the later medieval and early modern period? Or was that just a weird accident, you think? I don't know. I mean, I think in general, early modern Irish is, despite 
a current renaissance and despite a lot of people being interested in it and indeed you know brilliant work going back many decades it, it is underdeveloped you mm. know there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done still uh, I think early modern Irish a little bit I suppose like middle Irish is often treated as ancillary you know right. it, it's 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 something that you can either attack as an early Irish scholar you'll you know, muddle your way through early modern Irish or if you have a good grounding in modern Irish you can sort of go backwards and you'll you know oh, this synthetic form is a bit unusual but you right. know yeah. you quickly find yeah. your feet and I think it struggles a little bit perhaps in in not having a strong enough profile on its own mm-hmm. uh, I, th- I do think that is changing I think there's more um, appreciation now for um, early modern Irish as its own field but yeah certainly on the continent I think perhaps mm. because you're taking a bigger span generally you know in Ireland we can afford to have departments of modern Irish and departments of early Irish whereas in Marburg course, yeah. you're doing not only Celtic you know but you can throw in you know Indo-European and so on and uh, that tends to mean you know that you you're going back to the earlier stages of the language because they're you know, it's a principle of comparative yeah. uh, historical linguistics. So, and you go back to the earliest stage to try and yes. uh, compare languages and so on. Um, but on the other hand, I I I, I like that early modern Irish. Um, I mean, silly, you know, it sounds, you know, middle Irish is, if you like, the, the, the middle child, but in yeah. some ways, actually, <laughs> early modern Irish, I do feel, is the middle child. You know, there's an enormous amount of continuity mm. uh, from... Uh, old and middle Irish literature say you know syllabic poetry for example stretching from the old Irish period down to the end of the early modern Irish period and for that reason you know the early modern Irish scholar really does need to know about early Irish and needs to be up to date on what's happening in early Irish but linguistically you know we are comfortable with that watershed between early and modern and it does belong you know on Mm -hmm. the modern side linguistically um but I I you know, early modern Irish is a good kind of base to have if you want to explore the earlier period and the modern period. Yes, yeah. And of course, many of the scribes who copied these early texts for us were from that period. So indeed, I suppose indeed. We, we sometimes forget that. And that's yeah. an important part of it as well. I do feel a lot of early Irish scholars forget, if you like, that early modern transmission yeah and uh, and sometimes it's nice i think for them to have an early modernist in the room to go no no that's that's not particularly significant that's perfectly ordinary early modern spelling it does not point to a sixth century date for this text or something like that <laughs> i hear you're like uh, you're you're liking your role as party pooper is that it <laughs> you're the early irish party pooper <laughs> but i do feel uh oh i'm surprised to hear that uh, there was actually some um, uh, some thought given to this in secondary school when you were learning Irish. So there was some uh, some early modern Irish in the curriculum. Well, there was really only this tiny, I, I can't remember now even what percentage of the overall mark for Irish you got for Starnagege. Um and that's just the name of the course, not the name of the uh, spider killer that we all have on our desks. Um, but, just to explain, uh, there's, a, there's a really big book and it's called Star Nogelke, uh, and it has the grammar of the whole of Irish uh, in it, uh, which means it's a great spider killer. Because yeah. it's really big. <laughs> not that we should be killing spiders, of course. Of course, the, you know. The Dublin yes. Institute wishes to distance itself from these uh, arachnophobic comments. Um, <laughs> Biodiversity is important. Let's indeed. just, uh, yes, okay. But uh, anyway. But, but no, there was, only, there was only a tiny sliver, you know. Mm. Um, 
and it was really just through, as I say, an interested and engaged and enthusiastic teacher um, that I started reading this stuff and hunting it out. And then when I went into Trinity as junior fresh 2006, um, I was really chomping at the bit and my hmm. the the professor there was warned in advance by one of the other lecturers oh, no there's this guy <laughs> Hoyne in first year who wants to know about bardic poetry he has a real interest <laughs> and Professor McManus is alleged to have responded don't worry we'll cure that quickly <laughs> <laughs> that's the classic McManus uh, right there <laughs> you know I was so you know it, it, it's you know it's so lucky in a way I mean I'm speaking obviously very selfishly you know I was sitting in the class with maybe 25 or 30 other people I'm the only one who went on mm. to study Irish at third level but I'm so glad it was there you know and you do yes. wonder what course would your life have taken if you hadn't had these if not exactly chance at these fortuitous uh, yes. encounters with things like that and uh, but you know then I, I still remember very very vividly sitting in uh, a lecture hall in the awful arts block of Trinity College which you know mm-hmm. very well ah yes <laughs> disgusting building um but sitting there and the first poem that we did and just feeling this is interesting stuff and I think uh, you know I was always attracted to the uh classical modern Irish the sort of bardic stuff mm. because it's very difficult but it's very rewarding you know yes I think yeah. you know I went into I was the first in my family to go to college and I think mm. I had a I was aware that, you know, the taxpayer, hardworking right, yes. nurses and bus drivers are paying my fees. So I thought, yeah. well, this is great. I really love doing bardic poetry, but it's bloody hard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the taxpayer is getting value for his yes. or her money. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we had, again, you know, great lecturers who had that ability to sort of face the difficulty head on, you know, not to pretend that it is, mm. that it is easy because anybody who starts investigating medieval early modern art and so on very quickly discovers it's not actually easy no, you know, no it can be great no. fun but it's not necessarily easy but it, you know i think if you have a good teacher um yes. they can on the one hand you'll know, make it accessible make it exciting make you want to persevere but at the same time leave open that door for maybe more advanced students to say oh this is challenging i can go further with this i can take this to another level than just you know passing this exam or yeah. writing this yeah. essay or whatever it might be yeah. Yeah, teachers are definitely very important for any career. Mm. I think I think all of us yeah. are able to pinpoint, you know, the teacher that made them think, oh, <laughs> yeah, or unfortunately, sometimes, well, sometimes the teacher that turns you off something forever. <laughs> that is true as well. But let's not get into this. This is a very positive no, podcast, indeed, indeed. <laughs> except for poor spiders. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah. Oh, 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 hey, <laughs> I thought we agreed on no arachnophobic uh, comments. But in any case, now uh, you're at the at the School of Celtic Studies at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies and you're our very own Bergen Fellow. So what is that? Uh, what does that mean? And why is it called the Bergen Fellowship? That's a good question. Um, I think the, the Dublin Institute has um, O'Donovan scholarships, which are mm-hmm. generally now for... Uh, um, people just after finishing their PhD maybe or you know very early in their career and then Bergen fellowships for slightly more um, senior academics but you know I I do say slightly more senior (laughs) you know um, still very much early early career researchers and the names I suppose as you know the the O'Donovan scholarship of course honors John O'Donovan one of the great uh, pioneers philologists and uh, 
antiquarians of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bergen is widely credited by many with being one of the founders of the scientific study of uh, the Irish language, of bringing rigorous German philology to Ireland. Oh, yes. The beginning of yeah. the 20th century. By the way, these um, scholarships all had far less romantic names until I think a few decades ago. Oh, really? Um, I did not know that, actually. I think, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the exact terms, but uh, I think junior research assistant ah, uh, yeah. might have been the old name oh, for the Bergen boring. Fellowship. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd much rather be a fellow, yes. <laughs> yes. And I do like the ring of uh, the O'Donovan yeah. Scholarship as well, uh, because yeah. both myself and Christina, our previous guest, are on the O'Donovan Scholarship. And we're very proud to throw that name around at uh, Indeed, you know, yeah. parties yeah. where you're introduced and you're like, I am the O'Donovan Scholar, uh, which and, sounds and much it, better. Yeah, And it really means something, you know, in mm. our field. You know, the, the Institute is again a really storied place that you know ah, i used yes. to come to seminars here when i was a phd student and i mean mm. you'd be nervous going in you know and seeing these titans of scholarship battle yes. it out and really tease over text and uh, you know it's a re- I, I, even when i was in when i was in germany in my first job after the phd um you know hittite scholars and scholars of indo-european and so on would say to me i don't know in scholarship but that's very prestigious, isn't it? <laughs> the implication being, of course, why the hell did they give it to you? No, the surprise uh, is a bit disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's a sign of the real of the real prestige yes. uh, that comes from it. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the the Bergen Fellowship is a, is you know a wonderful chance. Five years um, of research time in really the the sort of beating heart or throbbing brain of um, yes, of yeah. Celtic studies. Uh, wonderful research library, seminars, uh, colleagues to discuss things with. Yes. And uh, I mean, it, you know, it is very similar to the O'Donovan Scholarship, just two years long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course the title bump. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So your project is five years. Uh, mm. What is your project? What will you be looking at? Uh, during these five years yeah, well I know I you're was... you're heading towards the end of your five years so you'd be yeah, well able yeah. to give us some sort of summary I hope uh, well, no I pressure was, I, was, <laughs> I was warned to keep this fun and interesting so yeah. bear with me bear with me dear listener uh, I'm about to say things like Irish grammatical tracts but okay. trust me it's all very exciting <laughs> well Christina um, said parsing last week so I think we're good <laughs> uh, hopefully not before the watershed um, but um so I am working on re-editing and analysing a text that is given the very romantic name Irish Grammatical Tracts 3-4. Oh, love and it. I, I, just, I mean, it just trips off the tongue. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it, there were a series of texts put together probably towards the end of the 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, that really do represent something quite unique in vernacular Western European linguistics. Mm. A lot of languages in the early 16th century, European languages, were getting their first grammars or were getting their first dictionaries, were becoming objects of serious study. Irish, of course, had already been doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a native grammatical tradition stretching back to the old Irish period, uh, growing out of Latin, of course, but by the time you get to the later medieval, early modern Irish grammatical tracts, it's a fully fledged system in its own right, you know, it, it mm-hmm. requires separate study. And these tracts were put together specifically to describe the type of language used in syllabic poetry, high prestige, professional praise poetry, um, very much the creme de la creme of 
literary production. Uh, professional learned men um, writing for secular patrons, the, the lords, the ladies, the, the chieftains and so on mm -hmm. of later medieval and early modern Ireland. And they did something really quite extraordinary. Um, they developed or uh, I suppose participated in some way in the evolution of a canon. We, we estimate it's about 1200 poems that they had as a oh, database. Wow. That yeah, is enormous, we, we, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you think nowadays, for, for bardic poetry nowadays, we have 2,000 poems extant, hmm. right? Now, that is probably the tiniest fraction of what must once have been written between the 13th century and the 17th century. But this is what we have. But we've estimated that these bardic grammarians, these, these, these scholars, formed this database, or perhaps, you know, it formed more gradually as a sort of exercise in uh, canon formation, you know. Um, but these were the master poets of the 13th and the 14th and the 15th centuries, early 16th as well. And they studied them and they mm. described uh, the language that they used and they described it in enormous detail. They described the things that they liked and the things that they disliked. Mm. And they set out in these grammatical tracts um, their own system, their own understanding of how the language worked. Um, so from, the, from this sort of exercise in grammar writing, if you like, uh, we got these big, juicy tracts, um, IGT2, say, which deals with the noun and, and the adjective, has 207 sections. Now, the different manuscripts mm. are slightly different, so, but 207 sections to get every little complication, every little nuance of how to decline a noun in mm. classical modern Irish. The things I like how you call do. that juicy. <laughs> oh, yeah, but it really is. If you think now, if you in the 17th century, the Franciscans on the continent first forced, if you like, mm. the, the five declension system of Latin onto Irish. And that's still what you learn if you, if you do the declensions in school. You learn this five declension system, which is completely inadequate <laughs> for all the intricacies of the Irish language. Um, you know, it took, as I say, 207 paragraphs, uh, uh, 207 little declensions if you like, uh, to really get all these wonderful uh, 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 complications across. And bearing in mind, you're dealing with the stage of the language where you don't have a standardized orthography. So mm. things can go wrong. And you're not, you don't have a printing press. You know, you don't, uh, people aren't mass producing, photocopying, let alone yes, you know, putting yeah. things up online. So they came up with, or again, perhaps it gradually developed, might not necessarily be one individual overnight, but a system of being, if you like, foolproof. How do we make sure that the teaching is correct? Mm. So they took examples from this corpus that they had created, these master poets that they studied in bardic schools, and they picked metrically fixed examples of everything that they wanted to show. So if you were concerned with showing the correct attention of a noun, say, all you have to do is get an example where the meter fixes it. Mm. And classical modern Irish meter is very, very complicated, very sophisticated. So you have that example there. And that way, even if I, as a careless scribe, if I've had a bit too much to drink or I'm arguing <laughs> with my wife or it's dark and cold and all the yes, other things that scribes yeah, complain yeah. about, um, <laughs> I can still reconstruct what it should have been, you know, yes, um, yeah. And it's a wonderfully advanced methodology. And in many ways, actually, uh, those of us who are modern researchers will recognize it mm. um, in my youth, Nika, in the okay. long ago. Michal um, is here pretending he's a lot older than me, which in fact he is not. So. 
But it's one of the, his top boys, so I'll give it to him. <laughs> in the long ago, we used yes. to say... Fado, uh, pick, fado. <laughs> pics or it didn't happen, i.e. photographic evidence or it's not real. Yes. And uh, modern Irish philologists often joke, rhyming examples or it's not real. <laughs> it is still, you know, the gold, the gold standard, because we don't have recordings. You know, we can't yes. hop into a time machine. We can't do fieldwork. So metrically fixed examples of, of, of a particular linguistic feature are the gold standard of evidence. Yes. And that's what our predecessors in the, say, well, let's say the 15th and 16th century, that's what they were doing too i think i feel we should like have merch for the po this podcast where we have t-shirts with magical fixed <laughs> examples or it didn't happen <laughs> I it's think, an idea yeah i'm not sure how many of them would sell but <laughs> they would have at least the two of us you know in in dutch we'd say they'd sell like warm buns I'm sure oh, they'd I be think, gone without it. I think hotcakes, hotcakes. All right, say, okay. In, English or in American English, anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, that's kind of, that's the background. And, and you know, it really is a remarkable, the 16th century, as I say, all across Europe, you're seeing debates about language. Say in England, you're having debates about, you know, are there too many foreign words or too many words from, say, Greek or Latin? Mm. Uh, should we be getting back to good Anglo-Saxon vocabulary? Mm. Um, you're having, say, the first grammar of French is written, you know, the first grammar of actual, you know, vernacular French, not, you know, uh, uh, dealing with, if you like, as a deviation from Latin. This sort of stuff is happening all over Europe. And in Ireland, even though we had a much longer vernacular linguistic tradition, it reaches a new height with these, with these tracts. Mm. And, you know, they, they discuss, you know, We've, we've no doubt lost a great deal again, but, you know, very detailed tracks discussing, as I said, nominal declension or syntax uh, and meter, of course, is very important because these are the textbooks of, of bardic schools, yeah, yeah. Uh, of professionals. Yeah. So the one that I'm particularly interested in and the one that I am trying to re-edit and then translate into English and give a commentary for and sort of make accessible, mm -hmm. um, not only to scholars of Irish, but also to people who are interested in vernacular linguistics in Europe in in this period uh, is one that is and even even trying to explain what it's about is actually a nice <laughs> example of the difficulty of dealing with these texts and of a grammatical system that has its roots in in Latin grammar but has been growing for a very long time mm -hmm. so it is a tract that deals with verbal nouns mm -hmm. the verb more generally and nouns derived from adjectives. Juicy nice. indeed. <laughs> and you're wondering to yours, you're sitting at home and you're wondering, why, why in the hell are all of these brought together under one tract? Mm -hmm. And you really have to put yourself in the shoes of bardic grammarians and try and understand their terminology. Um, the word persona in Latin was borrowed into Old Irish as uh, person mm -hmm. and gradually it became persa, um, uh, and parsa in, in early modern Irish. And you might think as a grammatical term that that should mean person, you know, yeah. uh, first person, second person, so on. Well, you'd be wrong by the time you get to the, by the time you get to the 16th Sorry, century. Sorry, listeners. It now means having taken lots of twists and turns. It now means abstract noun. Oh. And Bardic poets believed that all verbal forms were actually derived from verbal nouns. So I do, you do, he does, and so on. They would say, well, that, that, that they're all derived from doing. That's the way right. they look at their grammar, and that's how they think it works. Now, a verbal noun is an abstract noun. You can't touch it, you can't eat it, you can't sense mm -hmm. it, you can't, you know. Um, so with that in mind, right, they think that all verbal forms are derived from verbal nouns, 
all verbal nouns or abstract nouns, it makes sense that they group yeah, all these different yeah, things yeah. together in one big massive tract um, because it's all united by their understanding of parsa, the grammatical concept of parsa, yeah. which doesn't really translate into English, you know. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's a nice example of part of the joy of working on these tracks. It's very you know? elegant and very advanced, as you say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I must say, like, my next question would have been... Uh, why would you be doing that, you poor thing? <laughs> but I think you kind of answered that as well. And we can throw that question in the bin because it seems like an incredibly advanced system of dealing with the grammar of your language. And also, I suppose, in passing on that knowledge to students and other generations yeah. of poets and uh, linguists. We, we are extraordinarily lucky to have them both as an insight into their own grammatical thought. Here you have incredibly learned native speakers telling us what they thought about their language, when they believed a word had two different senses or simply one sense, mm -hmm. when they believed a verb, the different, say, suppletive forms of a verb should be treated separately or when they should be treated along with the, the rest of the verbal forms. You also have, you know, it is a remarkable repository of uh, interesting forums, as the great <laughs> Tipperary scholar M.A. O'Brien was apparently wont okay. to say. In fact, you know, when we investigate medieval or early modern Irish literature, you know, we're often very lucky, you know, we find rare words, we find rare verbal forms, but often, you know, there are gaps in the dictionary, there mm -hmm. are gaps in our paradigms, just because we don't, we don't have the evidence, we weren't lucky enough to have the yes. second singular of that verb. But the wonderful thing about these tracts is, you know, they give us an enormous amount of information we simply wouldn't have about rare items of vocabulary, full declensions of verbs where, you know, we simply if we were left to our own devices, left to look at the text that we have uh, surviving in manuscript, we might never be able to recover some mm. of this information. Yeah. The third thing I would mention, just to, to really finish <laughs> off that question. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> is um, just as literature, you know, I mentioned before that they have this, uh, they, they had this database that they kept drawing on. Mm. These were master poets because they, you know, they really knew how to use the meter, uh, because they were respected authorities on language, but also because they were bloody good poets. Mm. They fill these tracts with citations to prove the different teaching. And these citations are taken from some of the best, the most beautiful poems that we have extant in Irish. Uh, and indeed, some of them aren't extant anymore. We only know mm. about them because we have these little extracts. You know, We've yeah. only actually identified about, I think it's an eighth, Oh, of wow. all of the citations. That yeah. yeah, yeah. So an awful, like an enormous amount of loss. And those poems were the ones that were really assiduously studied in schools. Yes. So the fact that we've lost them really does show how much material we've lost. Mm -hmm. But some of those, those lines are just so moving. You know, they really knock your socks off as you're going yes. through the tract, you know. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, one of my favourites, actually, which I was talking yes. to a colleague about the other day. On veiled nor helig green da grieve in the queer yerig near um noin. This is introduced, you know, just to illustrate a grammatical point, right? Right. Um, so the, it's a beautiful metaphor about the sun going down at night. It's, you know, um, all that the sun does not cast away of its spear. So all the spears that the sun does not cast away during the day are a burning red mass from the west at night. Oh, wow. This idea that, you know, sunbeams, the, the word in Irish is gah, you know, they're spears. Yes. Yeah. So you imagine the sun as having this arsenal of spears. And at the end of the day, <laughs> as it's glowing red, they're all the spears it didn't cast during the day. You know, that's inc incredibly that's beautiful imagery. Beautiful yes. image. Yeah. Um, 
some are you know wonderful just for the i suppose the humanity of them or mm. um even the just the, the artistry of them uh again a poem that we, we haven't found the full poem we only have these lines um uh, um, I am angry at the king who gave uh, because he has taken from us the one that he gave. And two different w- forms of Irish there oh, for right. gave. But giving out to God for taking away the person that he gave to you. I'm angry at the king who gave because he took from us he whom he gave. You know, yeah, it's yeah. wonderful play in Irish, two different forms of the of the he gave uh, all wrapped up in in one quatrain which is very um, poignant uh, it is and, and, and a lot and of human you know, as you say like very yeah. yes and indeed actually you'd really love to know i mean some a lot of bardic poems are formal they're mm. propaganda or if you like diplomacy by verse you know mm. but we do have personal poems poems of grief poems where poets lament each other for example and, and speak very movingly about the death of a brother poet say and again from the tracts there's there's a one example that is again we, we don't know we don't have the full poem it's from but uh now is not the time to fight for me i or to fight with me i should say i am not under the protection of my teacher uh, and we can imagine or assume that that's a poem written on a teacher's death, you know. Right. Um, I, I don't have, or well, I mean, perhaps not, you know, again, this is the difficulty mm, with well, trying yeah. to, it could just be a poet who's going, a trainee poet who's <laughs> you know, gotten into an argument and his, his teacher's off in the pub. I don't know. I know we young scholars, uh, especially during your PhD, you do feel like that when you go to your yeah. first conference. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, that's it. And now, see, now you have your protection. And nos ni tra trida rin er ska vide ni ilim. Yes. That's your, okay. that's your line to protect so yourself. So yeah. if there's any young scholars listening, use this line <laughs> if you're ever under fire at a conference from very difficult question and your supervisor is not in a room. <laughs> or if you ever want to illustrate one of the alternative genitive singulars of the word trid. Um, but or that's, that. <laughs> I mean, it which happens is why to all of us. <laughs> Which is why it's cited in the tract. You know, Trida rhymes with idja, and it you know, gives you yeah. this, this perfect evidence that that is indeed a permissible form of uh, of the genitive of that word. Yeah, but it must be very difficult. Um, I mean, these lines you can interpret it somehow, but it must be very difficult to sometimes to interpret these lines as there's no yeah. poem to go with it. It is very difficult. I mean, one of the one of the I suppose advantages of the tracks is it does seem that they they selected quatrains and half quatrains, the most part anyway, that could stand alone, you know. Um, Now, admittedly, there are times where you don't know, for example, if you're dealing with a third singular verb, there's no pronoun, is it he, she, it, Um, Mm. you know, and you do have to do a certain amount of guesswork. Um, This is probably part of the reason why um, Osborne Bergen, who did a lot of the pioneering editing work on these tracts, chose not to translate Mm. uh, these half quatrains. um, Another scholar working at the same time who similarly did, you know, Herculean work, in on the grammatical tracts, uh, Lambert McKenna, he did translate them. And, you know, for most of them, you can at least make, hmm. you can at least make a guess, you know. Yeah. Um, and and I do think, you know, the, they, many of them, you know, they, they deserve 
you know, to be praised as literature. And I, yes. I think we yeah. should attempt a transition. You know, transitions are always tentative, mm. you know. Um, and indeed, if you have full text, they're often tentative. You know, another manuscript might alter how you might have yes. taken a particular sentence exactly. or so on. So, you know, I think in, in something like this, you know, you try and be brave and, and you, you give it your best attempt. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's very interesting to see sort of, because um, this links in nicely with the previous episode as well, where Christina was telling us that a lot of the, well, a lot of poetry quatrains um and phrases and whatnot are only preserved because they were used in a commentary for example mm, the commentary mm. to the Afra Kolmkhile or the commentary to the Fehlere Eingesse and we have all these tantalizing snippets of text that are now lost mm. uh, and it's it's the same for the bardic gram grammatical text Indeed. by the sound and of it yeah yeah, and and indeed the earlier grammatical grammatical tracts as well, or metrical tracts, you know, mittelirische Verslehren. Mm. Um, we don't actually have, say, a lot of satire from the early modern period. You know, we have a few examples, but if you read through the grammatical tracts, there are quite a few nasty quatrains giving out about the table manners of some yes. O'Kelly women, or saying <laughs> that uh, some fella looks like an owl, which was yeah. meant as an insult. You know, and um, you I think know, it's rather cute, but uh... <laughs> that's it. I mean, I, I've certainly been called worse, but yeah. <laughs> but. Um, um, I think you this know, is a I, good moment, sorry, for a plug as yeah. well, because, you know, the <laughs> Institute does actually sell a book uh, on Indeed, early yeah. Irish satire where uh, Rasheen McLaughlin, I think, has collected yep. all these uh, these uh, satire quatrains in one book. And it's great reading. And uh, you and me actually last year for Culture Night, mm. we did a little workshop on uh on composing a satire, yeah. which had some great results, I must say. It was great fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was great fun. It's funny. It seems to be natural to everyone, you know, so if you <laughs> to understand the principles. But yeah, I, exactly. I actually, I really would thoroughly recommend um, uh, Rashin's book because yeah, uh, yeah. it makes for, again, fantastic reading. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you'll learn how to insult somebody say they're like badger's poo and that sort of thing you exactly. know all the time. And, <laughs> and do it in old irish as well so you're safe yeah. because not a lot of people would actually know Indeed. what you're saying so. but also you know so many insults that we use in day-to-day -day life are so boring you know you're yeah. And this, yeah. you know, spice it up, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and on that note, I know you yourself also have a book out at the Institute. I do. Was that um, a previous project of yours? or um... It was indeed. That, that, well, it's an expanded version of my PhD thesis. All right. So, um, yeah. Do you know, I, what is the title of your book? Just to, so people can find it on our website. <laughs> it's it's Fuel Or, that okay. is the survivors, those who have made it out of the battle, um, bardic poems on the Mekirmada of Moy Lurug. Mm. Um, so it's a study of the small little kingdom of North Roscommon, Moy Lurug, uh, was ruled by the McDermott's in the Middle Ages. Um, they were great patrons of poetry. In the book, I tried to edit as best as I could uh, those poems that hadn't been edited um, in honour of that family before. And as well as that to kind of provide a bit of context and a sort mm. of a study of the overall um, corpus. So yes, I understand it is available on the website <laughs> of the institution. And it's also very big. So, you know, if you dislike your spiders. <laughs> it's plenty to read, but it's actually, it's a wonderful, um, you know, again, I've, I, I've mentioned before, you know, I really, I was already interested in Bardi poetry coming. Mm. I was already converted, if you like, before I went to Trinity. And I had a great time as an undergraduate. I studied uh, history, medieval history with Catherine Sims, mm. uh, who did extraordinary work in teaching historians and indeed philologists to read Bardic poetry. Yes. She created the Bardic poetry database. I was lucky enough too to be taught by Damien Manus and Owen McCorha, two of the foremost scholars of Bardic poetry. Um, and not only that, but even as an undergrad, 
they were prepared to let me edit a poem from manuscript. I had my first ah, experience yes. of of editing, you know, something that no one else had done, no one else had yeah. translated. That is such exciting um, work to do. And to go mm. on and do the PhD, it really was fun. And, you know, bardic poetry has a, a sort of, in some ways, a bad reputation um, it, it, because you know, the, the meter and the language are so complicated, it requires that extra level of study. But it really is great fun. In that McDermott book, you know, you have, um, you know, wonderful martial poems, you know, really macho stuff, all these, you know, <laughs> lads heading off to steal cows and slash each other's legs off and that sort of thing, you know, gruesome, awful. <laughs> um, but you have wonderful apologues, you know, Cuchulain uh, defending Ulster, um, mm. looking down at his chest and realising for the first time that he's human. And then oh. uttering beautiful lines, which I often say to students to remind them to be gentle with themselves. You know, the the mchria dol no del dosil on their kuachlasri, fachlor sravglas namach min la anyarnas niyinginen. Had I known, had I thought uh, that my heart was a flesh and blood, I would not have done half of what I did around the plain of green streams and musical bees, uh, sweet sounding bees, you know. He realises, you know, he, was, he, he believed he was made of iron or made of stone. Yeah. So yes, it's fantastic history. Yeah. And you get wonderful insights into society as well. One of the poems I edited in the McDermott book has an eyewitness account of, there was a movement in the 15th century, patrons in particular, aristocrats, actually were in some ways stricter than the priests and nuns that they uh, supported. And particularly in the 15th century, they began to get annoyed that priests were, you know, engaging in relationships which were not, <laughs> not appropriate, uh, given their oath of celibacy. Mm -hmm. And there's actually an eyewitness account in the McDermott book of a priest trying to seduce a nun and the poet <laughs> records it and uh, uh, and disputes the priest had sworn on the great missile uh, that he hadn't made any attempt and she was an anchoress too meaning she was Ooh. you know moored she was trapped in this little you know little room <laughs> beside the church uh, as in a sort of an ascetic practice he and she still himself, had the he set himself quite the job then in, well I presume she had a door to let him in or something I mean let's not go into I don't know maybe there was a little latch she could open let's not get yes. into the okay. uh, let's keep this let's keep this PG now. Yes, um, all right. But, but you know, Bardic Port is one of these wonderful things, you know, on the one hand, you do have to be, you know, a linguist, you have to be a study, student of metrics, you have to be a student of history, but you know, you, you know, it's full of so many in interesting mm. stories and apologues and metaphors. You find yourself, as a colleague of mine was recently, wondering, do swans have knees and where are they? <laughs> Or having to, you know, research the life cycle of salmon because, you know, a poet <laughs> has, has constructed a whole poem on the metaphor of the life cycle of a salmon, you know. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's, it's wonderful, you know, it's, it's wonderful exercise for the mind, yeah. you know. You and very broad ranging. Yeah, very oh, broad yeah. ranging by the sound of it, yeah. yeah. And what's the deal with this cow stealing? Because we know, of course, that the Tom Bokunia, I mean, the famous <laughs> epic of the Irish uh, is about stealing cows, but then apparently bardic poets... Oh, yeah. uh, we're describing people going about stealing cows still in the. Oh, this is this is most of what they did for most of the medieval, <laughs> early modern period. I mean, the annals are largely just records of McDermott went into O'Connor Sligo right. and took his cows, and O'Connor Sligo took them back, and then McDonough decided <laughs> he'd have some of them too. But you know, this is in, in a, a society where cattle were such an important mm. role and a mark of status, you know. Um, uh, practically you know a currency still do you think that's um, why cows always have this sort of eternally confused look on their faces because they're always you know being transferred between 
And I think they have, I think it's very zen. I feel cows ah, are just... Ah, okay, maybe that's it. They just don't yeah. care. <laughs> it's today like, okay, I'll go the, to your field, whatever. That's it. Oh, yeah. am I in McDermott territory today? Oh, right. <laughs> oh, McDonough territory. Oh, O'Connor Snyco. All right. <laughs> <laughs> These cows got to see the world, man. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a, there's all, I mean, you do get other things, you know, there's the good old fashioned, you know, pillaging and burning. Mm-hmm. Um, never and never goes out of fashion. Um, All right. Yes. You, you get the occasional stealing of a of a backgammon set. I'm not sure if that's even the right word. Um, uh, you know, there's there's <laughs> there's there's a little bit of variety, but yes, it mm. is it is mostly horses and uh, cows. Yeah. Yeah. We do also get the occasional book, which is kind of cool, that is used as ransom, for example, yes, to uh, to buy some uh, some earl's freedom. So you know, as nerds, yeah. we appreciate that. In, in, absolutely, <laughs> your value is a book. <laughs> A very big book. <laughs> okay, excellent. Let's move on to the next question. Kesht. It is not from study that you have thought that up, uh, which I kind of used to ask you about. Um, does life outside of academia inspires you? Inspire you? Is there anything in your daily life where you go, oh, I can use it in my research, or mm. is it because you're you can go? on walks and then brilliant ideas yeah. come to you or is there anything outside of academia that inspires you yeah well i think you know well first of all i mean in general as researchers uh, you know it's very important because we are we are so in our heads hmm. you know and it is possible for us in many cases anyway to work from home and if you like never to take a break i mm. think it's a very important part of our research to not do research sometimes <laughs> to, that is just, a very nice take on this you know <laughs> to just go outside and talk to somebody else you know yes. um yeah. i mean i think the driving force for me in my research is my own curiosity if you like you mm. know there's no external impulse that leads me to research i just think that the material that we are lucky enough to work on and that the taxpayer is generous enough to support mm. is interesting part of European history. And, you know, we should do our duty to share it. Yes. It's funny, you know, all the different things, though, that do help you going about it. You know, mm. um, as I said, when editing a bardic poem, you know, you never know. You could be staring at a swan in the river and suddenly <laughs> you understand the metaphor, you know. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Did you see many... the knees? Are there knees? Exactly. There are knees. Oh, believe wow. <laughs> giant new flesh here in this podcast um, you heard it here first swans this is, have by the way, knees in case you're wondering you know why you would want such a thing bardic poet poet bardic poets <laughs> often use these extravagant metaphors to describe you know the the excellent weather and the fertility of the land mm. under the rule of the just lord and sometimes lady and uh, you know yeah. one of the things that they will say for example is that because the sun is shining so much the water level goes down you know so you actually get a mini drought they don't oh, mind talking about droughts actually that's regarded as a good thing <laughs> i suppose in ireland it was so unrealistic time there. but anyway but they'll say you know the water doesn't reach a swan's knees you know? oh, all right yeah best check where the knees are on the swan i suppose <laughs> very good um, yeah but no i do think i mean you know what i was talking before about you know the humanity of a lot of this literature and mm. i think you know it's important for us you know not to i suppose not to exist in too rarefied an atmosphere because it is human beings who produced the yes. literature that we work on and very often they're about human affairs you know and even the most supernatural and you know magical and legendary stories will often have just the basic human reality of it you know emotions jealousy or grief or whatever it might be mm. and uh, you know I think it is important just to just to be out to be listening to people to be 
you know, out in the world. But, um, you know, on the other hand, it is also another, you know, the past is a, is a, is a different country and things are mm. different there, you know, and same with Bardi poetry, you know, you're working on stuff produced for the 1% of society, if you like, you know, yes, yeah. uh, celebrating war, celebrating violence, um, you know, celebrating these martial ideals that certainly I don't <laughs> admire very much. So, you know, it's also very strange from us in, yeah, in, yeah. in lots of ways. You just, you mentioned the occasional reference to uh, women in these poems. Do we, do we know of any bardic poems that were written by women and what type of stuff would be written about women? Do we yeah. know anything about that? The um, the the issue of of sort of female poets, at least in the later medieval and early modern Irish period, is very controversial. Um, we oh, have we a love that. <laughs> well, we've we've a handful of poems that might be written by women, but of a sort of an informal nature, if you like. Mm. You know, um, actual formal bardic panegyric. Um, the sort, the sort of stuff that patrons wanted to put in their poem books and the manuscripts that they paid for, these were written by men. It was a male profession. We have no evidence of sort of women receiving any kind of training. There is a list of poets that was put together in, I think, 1585 in Munster um, by the English authorities, and it's kept in the in uh, Lambeth Library. Oh. <clears throat> there are several hundred poets on there. Interestingly, it also mentions a number that the kind of poet we would be familiar with, whose work tends to be preserved in manuscripts, is a filler. Okay? Yes. That's a high-ranking, literate, well-educated, prestigious sort of person. You know? um, there were also poets known as the Bard, you know, Bard in the singular, uh, and their work, at least in Ireland anyway, doesn't tend to survive. It doesn't tend to make right. it into manuscripts. Now, in this list, you have, I think, several hundred names of men, but you do have two women named as she-bards, okay. and that's the term used, she-bards. Um, <laughs> so it implies at least, you know, there were at least a tiny minority of women who, if you like, broke the glass ceiling, um, <laughs> but at the at the lower level rather than at the higher level. I don't right. think we have any evidence. Of course, you know, I'd love to be proven wrong, yes, and yeah, yeah. Uh, one lives in hope. As for women as patrons, I mean, that's a totally different story. Mm. Um, and traditionally, it's been underestimated, perhaps, you know, um, the slight bias, maybe of not just of male editors, but predominantly of male editors. Sometimes, you know, a poem will be presented as a praise poem for the husband, when in fact it's really a praise poem for the wife and the husband is tacked on rather than the wife. We have quite right. a few poems that were commissioned by women and quite a few poem books that were commissioned by women. And uh, oh, that's interesting you know, as well, that they would have their own collection, as it were, so they were probably able to read maybe them oh, themselves. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. oh, certainly. I mean, some women, yeah. particularly you get later in the period, uh, some women certainly could read mm. and took a very active role in in uh, patronising uh, poetry. And, um, you know, they tend, women tend to be praised for sort of womanly virtues mm. in um, one of our grammatical and metrical texts, the flaws, the stylistic flaws. One of them is saying that a woman is brave because, you know, women aren't brave. You know, women are, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, although there are some pretty tough cookies uh, uh, in, in, in 
particularly early modern Ireland, some women who uh, were prepared to assassinate uh, the allies of their husbands if they didn't like them and things like oh, that. Tell oh, tell us yes, more. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, if you want, uh, a new book has appeared by herself, a formidable woman, uh, <laughs> my, my former teacher, Catherine Sims, her, mm. her book on medieval Gaelic Ulster is, is out from Forecourt. Oh, and it's really a yes. fantastic read. And uh, she deals there with um, specific cases of powerful women who commanded gallow glasses, who, as I said, if their husband makes an alliance with somebody and they don't like that person, well, I'll just send somebody to kill him. So <laughs> uh, women who negotiated peace treaties while their husbands were away at war and so mm. on, women who took charge of the defense of castles under sieges and so on. So, you know, there's a tiny a minority of wealthy aristocratic women mm. who you know were able to patronize the arts and were able to uh, play a role in politics and so on but unfortunately you know they were a tiny minority and most of bardic poetry is not only produced by men but also you know about men yes um, yeah, yeah. but you know even the men you know women play a very important role again Damien McManus has been doing a lot of research on this recently you know the amount of attention paid to uh, the mother's genealogy say if you're praising a man you still praise his mother her descent she'll mm. often be from a more powerful family than yours and so right. her genealogy is more important and you spend most of the poem talking about her ancestors rather than uh, if you like the ancestors of the male line um yes. so you know there's there's there there's a lot to be said and that still can be said about about um, women in bardic poetry and as i say it's more work is being done on that now mm. but unfortunately it is you know quite not only male dominant also quite misogynistic you know mm. i mean say a metaphor you might use um, it's used in a poem to i think one of the o'kelly's in the 15th century if i remember rightly um one of the metaphors used to describe how calm and gentle the weather is under the reign of the just king is that you'd even let a woman take the helm of your boat you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know an early woman driver joke you know yes. <laughs> You know, so unfortunately, that is, you know, that is the world. Yeah. That, uh, well, that unfortunately, is, a lot of men still feel that way, I think. Uh, so <laughs> maybe not that yes. much has changed. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately, I will, uh, <laughs> I will say that. Another thing I love, I know that Damien, uh, Damien McManus, whom you refer to, uh, has also published on dogs in mm. uh, early Bardic poetry or uh, early modern Bardic poetry, yeah. because talking about the humanity of this and maybe even, you know, uh, life outside of academia inspiring you. Uh, apparently dogs had a, a played a big role in this poetry. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, dogs received their own elegies. You know, you could write a whole poem on the death of a dog. Oh, um, yeah. Um, dogs play a major, major role <laughs> because they, I mean, medieval aristocrats loved dogs. You know, they were just mm. absolutely mad about them. Indeed, I mean, it's a difficult word uh, to translate but you know a, quite a common sort of vague uh, positive adjective is uh, um, you know dog loving oh, uh, yeah. now that's what it means etym etymologically yes um, uh, but it still it, it actually does even on very late in early modern Irish retain the original sense and it means both dog loving and good you know, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. and indeed there's a, there's a story in an early modern Irish Fenian text about on far 
I'm trying to remember the exact words of far, but Nav Hunchere, the man who least loved dogs in Ooh, Ireland. That's probably and, not a compliment. <laughs> but, well, he learns to love them by the end of oh, the story, of course. Oh, you know, happy that's ending. <laughs> <laughs> Which, oh yes, dogs are given personality. Dogs have lineages, you know, you can, you can really? give the genealogy of a dog, you oh, know. wow. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole vocabulary around them. And, and you were speaking there about how life can inform uh, your work you know mm. the, again I was reading a Fenian text and one of the the sort of great Fenian hounds has this sort of magic kind of claw thing on his paw mm. and he wears a little or she I should say wears a glove and uh, you know you can you have to take it off so she can go off and do her thing all right and there's a wonderful description of the text of how the dog looks up to remind the person you, oh. you, have, to take, you have to take off my little glove and anybody <laughs> who who knows dogs and loves dogs and spends time will know I've received that look you have to take me for a walk. Yes. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> it is time for dinner. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> um, yeah, very so, true. So you know, it's 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 yeah, um, it's one of the things that dog lovers like myself, uh, we, I think it's one of the aspects of medieval and early modern yes. Gaelic society that uh, I would have no objection to whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> so. and I think I think Damien published about this in two articles in the journal Eru. If if anyone mm. is interested in looking that up, so uh, that just. Uh, you know, to get dogs in this podcast yep. because I think it's well deserved. So, we need uh, we need dogs everywhere. Um, then my next question is: Kesht, to what place is your road? Uh, which is uh, well, you can talk about anything really. I mean, how you see the future of your research or the future of your career or the future of the field in general, maybe the future of bardic poetry or grammatical tracts, anything. Well, for I suppose for my own future, it is a bit difficult to say because um, I don't necessarily know where I will be mm. after uh, the lovely time spent in the Institute. And even with research, I find, you know, sometimes you're encouraged to write out a plan. What will I do this year? What will yes. I do in the next five years? And I feel terrible doing it because, as you know yourself, you know, curiosity driven research often means that you end up doing something you never thought you'd be doing. Mm. Even a few years ago, I didn't think I would be working on Irish grammatical tracts. Ah, you know? yes. you yeah. write an article, it leads to another article. You investigate one thing, it leads to another thing. And, uh, you know, trying to plan for that wonderful, almost creative process uh, is very difficult. Um, as for the field, I do think, you know, I, we're, we're, you know, we're in an exciting time at the moment. I think a lot of PhD students are coming out now mm. having edited bardic poems or taking an interest oh, in early modern Irish mm. texts so I do think the field you know for a long time it did sort of languish you know mm. sort of isolated editions were coming out but now you have a whole group of people working on texts discussing things with each other arguing with each other um new editions of the grammatical tracts the bardic poetry database is there thanks to the trinity bardic project we now have an electronic database of nearly every bardic poem that is oh, extant wow. um most of the unpublished ones are now printed uh, in a bardic miscellany mm. uh, which came out i think in 2010 uh, edited by uh, own o'reilly and Dave McManus and uh, you know it is a very exciting time because you've reached that sort of critical mass there's there's so much available you can ask really interesting questions um you can investigate forms and be you know investigate the entire corpus and be fairly mm. sure that you you haven't overlooked any examples so I think it's I think it's going a good way I think for the future as a field 
we should think about something a bit more programmatic. I think at the moment, understandably, you know, we all like to follow our own whims and mm. there's a bit of perhaps cherry picking. You can sometimes look through <laughs> a manuscript and find all the easy poems have been done and only the difficult ones are going. But I think, you know, the Welsh have shown, I mean, they've very systematically edited their bardic poetry. And I think it's something we should all think right. about here, you know, yeah. tackling it, tackling, you know, the 13th century or the 16th century or going by poet or going by family or in some way, you know, because there are still hundreds of poems mm. that remain to be edited, hundreds more that may have been edited but haven't been translated and hundreds on top of that that perhaps, you know, the, the editions or translations don't fulfill modern standards. So there really is no shortage of work to do. Yeah. As I said, the grammatical tracks, you could just mine them every time you read them. Mm. You find new depths, plenty of room for linguistic studies, metrical studies. Um, there really is, you know, no shortage of no shortage of work. Mm. And the same with early modern prose. I mean, you know, there'd be an enormous amount of texts have never even been transcribed, mm. you know. Um, uh, I think like probably even more, I think, I mean, there's loads of work to be done in Old and Middle Irish, but I suspect perhaps even more yeah. than Old and Middle Irish, yeah. there's still basic coalface work to be done. And I think one, I suppose, one, call, I suppose, source of anxiety for me is perhaps sometimes an attitude that this sort of basic editorial work, translation work, is not as respected perhaps as it should be. Now, I don't personally give a damn what anybody else thinks about my work. <laughs> I'm having so much fun doing it. But I mean, for funding applications, yes. um, for the CVs of young career researchers, I don't think it's always respected or acknowledged how taxing that sort of work is. Yeah. And as a scholar of classical modern Irish, I, I've often found in discussing colleagues, perhaps from better developed fields and discussing things with them, they often rush to, you know, oh, you should compare that or what's the theoretical basis mm. in which we analyze that. And you go, I, I'm still you know, doing the basic <laughs> uh, uh, work of, of trying to work out what it is in Irish first yeah. before I can compare it to French or English yes. or any yeah. other language, you know. And I think it's one thing that we need to, I suppose, just be cautious about that we, we need to defend the basic mm. i was about to say boring but i don't think it's boring no, it's, at all no, the thrilling, i agree with you yes, um, yes basic yeah, philological yeah. work you know yeah. it's wonderful to be that we we have reached the stage where there are plenty of literary studies historical studies comparative studies uh, interdisciplinary studies and they're all wonderful things but you know a healthy ecology let's go back let's let's return to ecology yeah. uh, a healthy ecology for i think medieval art and early modern art would, would still have plenty of space there for the fundamental building blocks yeah. and i think you know as well you know for undergrad curricula and um postgrad training and so on you know it does take a lot of effort to learn how to say edit a bardic poem yes you know yeah. you really do have to be master of a lot of skills and i think it's important that space be kept you know and ways be found to keep students engaged yes. and to to entertain them because you know it, it's not necessarily the most obvious um attraction if you like for maybe trying to keep bums on seats in undergraduate lectures but yeah. you know if we don't put in that effort you know there there yeah. there aren't you know uh, the field is growing but there still aren't that many people that really have the skills to 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 take a poem yeah. from from manuscript and then edit it up translate it interpret it and do the commentary and that sort of yeah. thing no it is a major problem in our field where um especially at the beginning of your career you will have to apply for funding for every project that you want to do and a lot of the major funding agencies would not be very 
enthusiastic of your yeah. application would just be, I'd like to edit this text, please. And they'd be saying, you know, what is innovative or, you know, yeah, absolutely. new and hip and happening about this, uh, even though you're editing a text that maybe nobody's seen before. So that's innovative in itself. Yeah. Uh, I do feel, I mean, that's one thing I've been very grateful to. I was lucky, you know, my PhD was fully funded in TCD. I had the O'Donovan Scholarship here yes. and then the Bergen yeah. Fellowship here. And for all of those, I was doing editorial projects. Yes. I was doing, you know, difficult cold face work. And I'm very grateful for those opportunities. But you're quite right, Nick. It is more mm. difficult, I think, from other funding bodies. Um, anecdotally, a story about, uh, again, the Trinity Bardic Project, you know, doing enormous work, 500 previously inaccessible poems. You had to go to the manuscripts to read them. A diplomatic edition was prepared. This is, you know, the same tradition as the diplomatic edition of the Book of Leinster or Lauren mm. the or these other, you know, big monuments in, in the early Irish field. It's made available. Wonderful. I still remember the night that I got the book. I was helping oh, to sell really? it on the thing. <laughs> and I went home and I hugged it and was meeting all these friends. I, I still the excitement pouring over. God, if you're not all, oh, your horse, all these friends. <laughs> and being able to just browse it and enjoy it. It was absolutely, it was magnificent, you know. Yeah. And, and to democratize it, you know, to make it available mm. to anybody who wants to read it. You know, you don't have to go to a research library. It was incredible. But, you know, it, it was a project that struggled to get funding because, you know, they made available not only a print edition that you can browse, but also an electronic edition of all of these poems, just a transcript, you know. And then I was able, there was funding from Trinity, and I was able to add that to Catherine Sims' mm. Bardic Poetry database. So now you can both see Catherine Sims' description of a poem and read the poem. In most cases, there's a small number that are still outstanding. But there was real reluctance to provide support for that because, oh, well, you haven't, um, uh, say, lemmatized. Um, mm. You haven't marked oh, yes. up the corpus. You know, well, I mean, ideally, that's something. And indeed, actually, there is currently work going on in TCD in, in that area. Mm. But the point was, at that time, this is, you know, yeah. archaeology almost. <laughs> this is getting stuff out of the ground, you know. Yeah. And you're, you're setting a standard for our field uh, mm. that might apply in a more developed field, you know. Um, you know, a diplomatic edition of, say, Beowulf being put up online is perhaps not the yes. you know, most exciting thing, you know. Yes, <laughs> Different perhaps, story. You be, perhaps you should be marking that up, you know. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to. Uh, maybe there's... <laughs> I don't know enough about Anglo-Saxon stories. But, um, but, you know, um, uh, I think sometimes we aren't judged. Our field is mm. judged by another sense. But the exciting thing about it for young research is, you know, as I said, those PhD students now, who, or indeed when I was a PhD student working in Bardic Poetry, you can be given a bunch of texts and be bloody sure that no one else has worked on them. Mm. And you have, you know, you have the freedom to yeah. go and explore, to do new things, to make a contribution. Indeed, as an undergraduate, I was able to, you know, publish an undergraduate thesis and say, well, if I'm hit by a bus, I've made at least one small <laughs> contribution to research, yeah, you know? That's, that's an yeah. amazing thing about our field that so much, so much is new. Fund, fundamental work yes, still to be yeah. done. And I think all of us know that if you want to go and do proper editing, the Institute is the place you go. Because yeah. there's such a, a strong tradition at the Institute of editing text and also a willingness to see that uh, as the important thing that it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it does need to be maintained because, you know, each generation, yes, it will need certainly. to be renewed. It's yeah, yeah. That's what I think what I was saying before about, you know, teaching and trying to get it across to undergraduates and so on. Mm. Uh, because, you know, it doesn't just happen from the sky. You know, each of yes. us has to be trained and it takes many, many years to attain that mastery. And, you know, there's no guarantee that that stays the same. So it's important that it always be yeah. safeguarded. And as I say, our field is now 
you know, bigger and more varied. And that's a wonderful thing. And I think mm. we can all feed off each other. And an individual scholar might, I mean, I have written articles that are more historical, say, or are more literary. Mm. And then I've done editing or I've done a more linguistic thing. And then other scholars might specialise in one or the other of those fields. And that's all good and healthy as yeah. long as everybody's getting a look in and yes. we're all, yeah, you know, yeah. feeding off each other. You know. Yeah, exactly. All right. Very good. So that's uh, the call to arms for the young generation <laughs> and the future yes. of the field. Indeed, then, come study Bardic Poetry in yes. the University of Dublin Trinity College. <laughs> <laughs> or with you, in fact, uh, because you do seminars sometimes at the Institute. I do. Uh, that I mean, are we do. Open, we, uh, yeah. Indeed, they're open to everybody. And we yeah. are, we have, um, this year we have experimented, as Nika knows, having helped to facilitate it on a few occasions, <laughs> we have experimented with having not only people down in the charmingly uh, decorated uh, institute <laughs> seminar room um, in the basement, um, but also having people join us online. And uh, I do hope if and when yes. seminars get up and running again, that that will actually become a permanent feature that people anywhere can yes. join us, maybe via Zoom or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, participate in trying to decipher the grammatical tracts if they so yeah. wish. We'll, uh, we'll keep you posted, uh, dear listeners, on uh, whether Michal's seminar will, will go online. And then uh, we move on to my final question, uh, which is... Kesht, in Vil Anamcharalat, do you have a soul friend? So uh, <laughs> that's the question we use for you to nominate the next person on this podcast. So the Irish word used is Anamchara, which is a, a lovely word, I think, uh, to nominate our next person. So Michal, who would you like to put in the hot seat for next time? Well, I would like to emphasize, by the way, that you know, Amhara can mean, you know, <laughs> mean, means confessor, and I ha I have not burdened this particular individual with all of my sins. Uh, yes. <laughs> but I would like to nominate uh, Anne Marie O'Brien, who is the incredibly hardworking, incredibly efficient, one-woman miracle that is ISOS. <laughs> Um, yes. She is responsible for the ISOS project, which I presume probably a lot of your listeners, Nika, will, will know. I hope so, um, because we mentioned it last week, um, or last week, I say last, uh, I mean last episode with Christina Cleary, uh, praising ISOS, in fact, because um, the Irish Script on Screen project has allowed us during the pan pandemic to do mm. a lot of work from home, uh, because yeah. a lot of the manuscripts would have been digitized on it. So yes, even even before the pandemic, it is thanks to Anne-Marie and ISOS and all the hard work that goes in there, yeah. that I can read the grammatical tracts in manuscripts in my pajamas. I yeah. mean, this is <laughs> this is the wonderful world we live in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I'll definitely uh, we'll uh, we'll get we'll try to get Anne Marie on board for next week and see how often she looks at the manuscripts in pajamas, <laughs> or maybe we could do a poll among our colleagues how often we look at the manuscripts in our pajamas and whether they be Christmas pajamas or I don't know dog pajamas or. <laughs> I think I think most Celtists would have to admit they've done this at least once. Yes, <laughs> and there's no shame in that indeed. So <laughs> that's great. All right, I think that. Uh, yeah, me, I'll go for it. Thank you, Nika. No, I was just going to say it was great talking to you and great seeing you. <laughs> Same here. I wanted to ask you, is there anything you feel like you haven't been able to say yet or want to plug or, uh, I don't know, words of uh, comfort to people in this pandemic? <laughs> Well, Jesus, I don't don't be looking to me now for comfort and, uh, <laughs> for comfort in this. You pandemic. don't have to. It's just to make sure you've said everything you wanted to say. No, I think I've, I've, the only point I think I'd, I just want to emphasize again is I do think it is you know it is a great privilege for all of us to be working in this. I do think, particularly in the institute, you know, it Indeed. is a wonderful 
um, institution. Yes. Uh, and it's fantastic to have the sort of opportunities that, that you and I have had to be able to do, you know, cu- genuine, fundamental, curiosity-led research yes. with experts. Mm. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, being always being conscious that this is an investment the Irish state has made in, mm. in you know, bringing this part of European intellectual life to light. Certainly. And all the taxpayers are now able to listen <laughs> to yes, what they get for their money on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so I hope they do, in fairness. I'm not sure they will, but I hope they do. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Michal. And, uh, Thank you very much, Nico. See you next episode with Anne-Marie okay. O'Brien, the, uh, the director of our ISIS project. Uh, is that- <laughs>